Chapter 16 of The Three Hostages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. L. Zelke. The Three Hostages by John Buchan. Chapter 16 Our Time is Narrowed. I lunched that day with Mary, alone for her aunts were both in Paris, and it would have been hard to find, in the confines of the British islands, a more dejected pair. Mary, who had always a singular, placid gentleness, showed her discomposure only by her pallor. As for me, I was as restless as a bantam. "'I wish I had never touched the thing,' I cried. "'I have done more harm than good.' "'You have found Lord Macott,' she protested." "'Yes, and I lost Turpin. "'The brutes are still three up on us. "'I thought we had found two. "'And now we have lost Miss Victor again. "'And Turpin. "'They'll find him an ugly customer "'and probably take strong measures with him. "'They'll stick to him and the girl and the little boy now like wax, "'for last night's performance is bound to make them suspicious. "'I wonder,' said Mary, always an optimist. You see, Sir Archie only dragged him in because of his rank. It looked odd his being in Adela's company, but then, all the times he has seen her, he never spoke a word to her. They must have noticed that. I'm anxious about Sir Archie. He ought to leave London. Confound him, he's going to. "'as soon as he gets out of hospital, which will probably be this afternoon. "'I insisted on it, but he meant to in any case. "'He's heard an authentic report of a green sandpiper nesting somewhere. "'It would be a good thing if Archie would stick to birds. "'He has no head for anything else. "'And now we've got to start again at the beginning.' "'Not quite the beginning,' she interposed. "'Dash it near it. "'They won't bring Miss Victor into that kind of world again. "'And all your work goes for nothing, my dear. "'It's uncommon bad luck that you didn't begin to wake her up, "'for then she might have done something on her own account. "'But she's still a dummy, and tucked away, "'you may be sure, in some place where we can never reach her, "'and we have little more than three weeks left.' "'It is bad luck,' Mary agreed. "'But, Dick, I've a feeling that I haven't lost Adela Victor. "'I believe that somehow or other we'll soon get in touch with her again. "'You remember how children, when they lose a ball, "'sometimes send another one after it, "'in the hope that one will find the other? "'Well, we've sent the Marquis after Adela.' and I've a notion we may find them both together. We always did that as children. She paused at the word children, and I saw pain in her eyes. Oh, Dick, the little boy. We're no nearer him, and he's far the most tragic of all. The whole business looked so black that I had no word of comfort to give her. And to put a lid on it, I groaned, I've got to settle down in Medina's house this evening. I hate the idea like poison. It's the safest way, she said. Yes, but it puts me out of action. 
he'll watch me like a lynx, and I won't be able to take a single step on my own. Simply sit there and eat and drink and play up to his vanity. Great Scott, I swear I'll have a row with him and break his head. Dick, you're not going to, how do you say it, chuck in your hand? Everything depends on you. You're our scout in the enemy's headquarters. Your life depends on your playing the game. Colonel Arbuthnot said so. You may find out something tremendous. It won't be horrible for you, but it isn't for long. And it's the only way. That was Mary all over. She was trembling with anxiety for me, but she was such a thorough sportsman that she wouldn't take any soft option. You may hear something about David Warcliffe, she added. I hope to God I do. Don't worry, darling. I'll stick it out. But look here. We must make a plan. I shall be more or less shut off from the world, and I must have a line of communication open. You can't telephone me at the house, and I daren't ring you up from there. The only chance is the club. If you have any message, ring up the head porter and make him write it down. I'll arrange that he keeps it quiet, and I'll pick up the messages when I get a chance. And I'll ring you up occasionally to give you the news. But I must be jolly careful, for likely as not, Medina will keep an eye on me, even there. You're in touch with McGillivray, she nodded. And with Sandy? Yes, but it takes some time. A day at least. We can't correspond direct. Well, there's the layout. I'm a prisoner with qualifications. You and I can keep up some sort of communication. As you say, there's only about another three weeks. It would be nothing if only we had some hope. That's life, my dear. We've got to go on to the finish anyhow, trusting that luck will turn in the last ten minutes. I arrived in Hill Street after tea and found Medina in the back smoking room writing letters. Good man, Annie, he said. Make yourself comfortable. There are cigars on the table. Had a satisfactory time in Shropshire, I asked. Rotten. I motored back this morning. Starting very early, some tiresome business here wanted my attention. I'm sorry, but I'll be out to dinner tonight. The same thing always happens when I want to see my friends. A hideous rush of work. He was very hospitable, but his manner had not the ease it used to have. He seemed on the edge about something, and rather preoccupied. I guessed it was the affair of Archie Roylance and Turpin. I dined alone, and sat after dinner in the smoking room, for Odell never suggested the library, though I would have given a lot to Fossick about that place. I fell asleep over the field, and was awakened about eleven by Medina. He looked almost tired, a rare thing for him. Also, his voice was curiously hard. He made some trivial remark about the weather, and a row in the cabinet which was going on. Then he said suddenly, "'Have you seen Arbuthnot lately?' "'No,' I replied with real surprise in my tone. "'How could I? He has gone back to the East.' "'So I thought, but I had been told that he has been seen in England.' 
For a second, I had a horrid fear that he had got on the track of my meeting with Sandy at the Cotswold Inn and his visit to Fossey. His next words reassured me. Yes, in London, within the last few days. It was easy enough for me to show astonishment. What a crazy fellow he is. He can't stay put for a week together. All I can say is that I hope he won't come my way. I've no particular wish to see him again. Medina said no more. He accompanied me to my bedroom, asked if I had everything I wanted, bade me good night, and left me. Now began one of the strangest weeks in my life. Looking back, it is still the inconsequence of a nightmare, but one or two episodes stand out like reefs in a tide race. When I woke the first morning under Medina's roof, I believed that somehow or other he had come to suspect me. I soon saw that that was nonsense, that he regarded me as a pure chattel. But I saw, too, that a most active suspicion of something had been awakened in his mind. Probably Archie's fiasco, together with the news of Sandy, had done it, and perhaps there was in it something of the natural anxiety of a man nearing the end of a difficult course. Anyhow, I concluded that this tension of mind, on his part, was bound to make things more difficult for me. Without suspecting me, he kept me perpetually under his eye. He gave me orders as if I were a child, or rather he made suggestions, which in my character of worshipping disciple I had to treat as orders. He was furiously busy, night and day, and yet he left me no time to myself. He wanted to know everything I did, and I had to give an honest account of my doings for I had a feeling that he had ways of finding out the truth. One lie discovered would, I knew, wreck my business utterly. For if I were under his power, as he believed I was, it would be impossible for me to lie to him. Consequently, I dared not pay many visits to the club, for he would want to know what I did there, and I was on such desperately thin ice that I thought it best to stay most of my time in Hill Street, unless he asked me to accompany him. I consulted Mary about this, and she agreed that it was the wise course. Apart from a flock of maids, there was no other servant in the house but Odell. Twice I met the gray, sad-faced man on the stairs, the man I had seen on my first visit, and had watched a week before in the house behind the curiosity shop. I asked who he was, and was told a private secretary, who helped Medina in his political work. I gathered that he did not live regularly in the house, but only came there when his services were required. Now, Mary had said that the other man, that evening in Little Fardell Street, had been Sandy. If she was right... This fellow might be a friend, and I wondered if I could get in touch with him. The first time I encountered him, he never raised his eyes. The second time, I forced him by some question to look at me, and he turned on me a perfectly dead, expressionless face like a codfish. I concluded that Mary had been in error, 
for this was the genuine satellite, every feature of whose character had been steamrollered out of existence by Medina's will. I was seeing Medina now at very close quarters and in complete undress, and the impression he had made on me at our first meeting, which had been all overlaid by subsequent happenings, grew as vivid again as daylight. The good fellow, of course, had gone. I saw behind all his perfection of manner to the naked ribs of his soul. He would talk to me late at night in that awful library, till I felt that he and the room were one presence, and that all the diabolic lore of the ages had been absorbed by this one mortal. You must understand that there was nothing wrong in the ordinary sense with anything he said. If there had been a phonograph recording his talk, it could have been turned on with perfect safety in a girls' school. He never spoke foully or brutally. I don't believe he had a shadow of those faults of the flesh, which we mean when we use the word vice. But I swear that the most wretched libertine before the bar of the Almighty would have shown a clean sheet compared to his. I know no word to describe how he impressed me, except wickedness. He seemed to annihilate the world of ordinary moral standards, all the little rags of honest impulse and stumbling kindness with which we try to shelter ourselves from the winds of space. His consuming egotism made life a bare cosmos in which his spirit scorched like a flame. I have met bad men in my day, fellows who ought to have been quietly and summarily put out of existence, but if I had had the trying of them, I would have found bits of submerged decency and stunted remnants of good feeling. At any rate, they were human, and their beastliness was a degeneration of humanity, not its flat opposite. Medina made an atmosphere which was like a cold, bright air in which nothing can live. He was utterly and consumedly wicked, with no standard which could be remotely related to ordinary life. That is why, I suppose, mankind has had to invent the notion of devils. He seemed to be always lifting the corner of a curtain and giving me peeps into a hoary mystery of iniquity older than the stars. I suppose that someone who had never felt his hypnotic power would have noticed very little in his talk, except its audacious cleverness, and that someone wholly under his dominion would have been less impressed than me because he would have forgotten his own standards and been unable to make the comparison." I was just in the right position to understand and tremble. Oh, I can tell you, I used to go to bed solemnized, frightened half out of my wits, and yet in a violent revulsion, and hating him like hell. It was pretty clear that he was mad. For madness means just this dislocation of the modes of thought, which mortals have agreed upon as necessary to keep the world together. His head used to seem as round as a bullet, like nothing you find even in the skulls of cavemen, and his eyes to have a blue light in them, like the sunrise of death in an arctic waste. One day I had a very narrow escape. 
I went to the club to see if there was anything from Mary, and received instead a long cable from Gaudian in Norway. I had just opened it when I found Medina at my elbow. He had seen me enter, and followed me in order that we should walk home together. Now, I had arranged a simple code with Gaudian for his cables, and by the mercy of heaven that honest fellow had taken special precautions and got some friend to send this message from Cristania. Had it borne the Murdell stamp, it would have been all up with me. The only course was the bold one, though I pursued it with a quaking heart. Hello, I cried. Here's a cable from a pal of mine in Norway. Did I tell you I had been trying to get a beat on the Lyrdal for July? I had almost forgotten about the thing. I started inquiring in March, and here's my first news. I handed him the two sheets, and he glanced at the place of dispatch. Code, he said. You want to work it out now. If you don't mind waiting a few seconds, it's a simple code of my own invention, and I ought to be able to decipher it pretty fast. We sat down at one of the tables in the hall, and I took up a pen and a sheet of notepaper. As I think I have mentioned before, I am rather a swell at codes, and this one in particular I could read without much difficulty. I jotted down some letters and numbers, and then wrote out a version which I handed to Medina. This is what he read. Upper Beat Lerdal, available from first of month. Rent, 250, with option of August, at 100 more. No limit to rods. Boat on each pool. Tidal water can also be got for sea trout by arrangement. If you accept, please cable word yes. You should arrive not later than June 29th. Bring plenty of bottled prawns. Motorboat can be had from Bergen. Anderson, Grand Hotel, Cristania. But all the time I was scribbling this nonsense, I was reading the code correctly and getting the message by heart. Here is what Gaudian really sent. Our friend has quarreled with Keeper and beaten him soundly. I have taken charge at farm and frightened the latter into docility. He will remain prisoner in charge of ally of mine till I give the word to release. Meantime, think it safer to bring friend to England and start on Monday. We'll wire address in Scotland and wait your instructions. No danger of keeper sending message? Do not be anxious. All is well. Having got that clear in my head, I tore the cable into small pieces and flung them into the waste paper basket. Well, are you going? Medina asked. Not I. I'm all salmon fishing for the present. I took a cable from the table and wrote, Sorry, must cancel, Leardall plan. Signed it, Hanny. Addressed it to Anderson, Grand Hotel, Cristania, and gave it to the porter to send off. <laughs> I wonder what happened to that telegram. It is probably still stuck up on the hotel board awaiting the arrival of the mythical Anderson. On the way back to Hill Street, Medina put his arm in mine and was very friendly. I hope to get a holiday, he said, perhaps just after the beginning of June. Only a day or two off now. I may go abroad for a little. I would like you to come with me. That puzzled me a lot. 
but Dina could not possibly leave town before the great liquidation, and there could be no motive in trying to mislead me on such a point, seeing that I was living in his house. I wondered if something had happened to make him change the date. It was of the first importance that I should find this out, and I did my best to draw him about his plans, but I could get nothing out of him except that he hoped for an early holiday, and early might apply to the middle of June as well as to the beginning, for it was now the 27th of May. Next afternoon at tea-time, to my surprise, Odell appeared in the smoking-room, followed by the long, lean figure of Tom Greenslade. I never saw anybody with greater pleasure, but I didn't dare to talk to him alone. "'Is your master upstairs?' I asked the butler. "'Will you tell him that Dr. Greenslade is here? He is an old friend of his.' We had rather less than two minutes before Medina appeared. "'I come from your wife,' Greenslade whispered. She has told me all about the business, and she thought this was the safest plan. I was to tell you that she has news of Miss Victor and the Marquis. They are safe enough. Any word of the little boy?' He raised his voice as Medina entered. "'My dear fellow, this is a great pleasure. I had to be in London for a consultation, and I thought I would look up Hanny.' I hardly hope to have the luck to catch a busy man like you. Medina was very gracious. No, that is not the word, for there was nothing patronizing in his manner. He asked in the most friendly way about Greenslade's practice and how he liked English country life after his many wanderings. He spoke with an air of regret of the great valleys of Los and the windy Central Asian tablelands where they had first foregathered. Odell brought in tea, and we made as pleasant a trio as friends as you could find in London. I asked a few casual questions about Fozzie, and then I mentioned Peter John. Here Greenslade had an inspiration. He told me afterwards that he thought it might be a good thing to open a channel for further communications. I think he's all right, he said slowly. He's been having occasional stomach aches, but I expect that is only the result of hot weather and the first asparagus. Lady Hanny is a little anxious, you know what she is, and all mothers today keep thinking about appendicitis. So I'm, I'm keeping my eye on the little man. You needn't worry, Dick. I take credit to myself for having divined the doctor's intention. I behaved as if I scarcely heard him and as if Fozzie Manor and my family were things infinitely remote. Indeed, I switched off the conversation to where Medina had last left it, and I behaved towards Tom Greenslade as if his presence rather bored me. And I had very little to say to him. When he got up to go, it was Medina who accompanied him to the front door. All this was a heavy strain upon my self-command for I would have given anything for a long talk with him, though I had the sense not to believe his news about Peter John. "'Not a bad fellow, that doctor of yours,' Medina observed on his return. "'No,' I said carelessly, "'rather a dull dog all the same, with his country gossip. "'But I wish him well, for it is to him that I owe your friendship.' 
I must count that episode one of my lucky moments, for it seemed to give Medina some special satisfaction. Why do you make this your only sitting room? he asked. The library is at your disposal, and it is pleasanter in summer than any other part of the house. I thought I might be disturbing your work, I said humbly. Not a bit of it. Besides, I've nearly finished my work. After tonight I can slack off, and presently I'll be an idle man. And then the holiday? And then the holiday. He smiled in a pleasant boyish way, which was one of his prettiest tricks. How soon will that be? If all goes well, very soon. Probably after the 2nd of June. By the way, the Thursday Club dines on the 1st. I want you to be my guest again. Here was more food for thought. The conviction grew upon me that he and his friends had put forward the date of liquidation. They must have suspected something, probably from Sandy's presence in England, and were taking no risk. I smoked that evening till my tongue was sore, and went to bed in a fever of excitement. The urgency of the matter fairly screamed in my ears, for McGillivray must know the truth at once, and so must Mary. Mercat was safe, and there was a chance, apparently, of Turpin and Miss Victor, which must be acted upon instantly if the main date were changed. Of the little boy, I had given up all hope. But how to find the truth? I felt like a man in a bad dream, who is standing on the lines with an express train approaching, and does not know how to climb back onto the platform. Next morning Medina never left me. He took me in his car to the city, and I waited while he did his business, and then to call in Carlton House Terrace, a few doors from the victor's house. I believe it was the residence of the man who led his party in the Lord's. After luncheon, he solemnly installed me in the library. You're not much of a reader, and in any case you would probably find my books dull, but there are excellent armchairs to doze in. Then he went out and I heard the wheels of his car move away. I felt a kind of awe creeping over me when I found myself left alone in the uncanny place, which I knew to be the devil's kitchen for all his schemes. There was a telephone on his writing table, the only one I had seen in the house, though there was no doubt one in the butler's pantry. I turned up the telephone book and found a number given, but it was not the one on the receiver, this must be a private telephone, by means of which he could ring up anybody he wanted, but of which only his special friends knew the number. There was nothing else in the room to interest me, except the lines and lines of books, for his table was as bare as a bank manager's. I tried the books, but most of them were a long sight too learned for me. Most were old, and many were in Latin, and some were evidently treasures for I would take one down and find it a leather box with inside it a slim battered volume wrapped in wash leather. But I found in one corner a great array of works of travel. So I selected one of Oriel Steen's books and settled down in an armchair with it. I tried to fix my attention, but found it impossible. The sentences would not make sense to my restless mind, and I could not follow the maps. So I got up again, replaced the work on its shelf, and began to wander about. 
It was a dull, close day, and out in the street a water cart was sprinkling the dust, and children were going parkwards with their nurses. I simply could not account for my disquiet. But I was like a fine lady with the vapors. I felt that somewhere in that room there was something that it concerned me deeply to know. I drifted toward the bare writing-table. There was nothing on it but a massive silver inkstand in the shape of an owl, a silver tray of pens and oddments, a leather case of note-paper, and a big blotting-book. I would never have made a good thief, for I felt both nervous and ashamed as, after listening for steps, I tried the drawers. They were all locked, all that is except a shallow one at the top, which looked as if it were meant to contain one of those big engagement tablets which busy men affect. There was no tablet there, but there were two sheets of paper. Both had been torn from a loose-leaf diary, and both covered the same dates, the fortnight between Monday, the 29th of May, and Sunday, the 11th of June. In the first, the space for the days was filled with entries in Medina's neat writing, entries in some sort of shorthand. These entries were close and thick, up to and including Friday the 2nd of June. After that, there was nothing. The second sheet of paper was just the opposite. The spaces were virgin up to and including the 2nd of June. After that, until the 11th, they were filled with notes. As I stared at these two sheets, some happy instinct made me divine their meaning. The first sheet contained the steps that Medina would take up to the day of liquidation, which was clearly the 2nd of June. After that, if all went well, came peace and leisure. But if they didn't go well, the second sheet contained his plans. Plans, I have no doubt, for using the hostages for wringing safety out of certain great men's fears. My interpretation was confirmed by a small jotting in longhand on the first sheet in the space for 2nd June. It was the two words, Diez Aire which my Latin was just good enough to construe. I had lost all my tremors now, but I was a thousandfold more restless. I must get word to McGillivray at once. No, that was too dangerous. To Mary. I glanced at the telephone and resolved to trust my luck. I got through to the Wymanham's house without difficulty. Bernard the butler answered and informed me that Mary was at home. Then, after a few seconds, I heard her voice. "'Mary,' I said, "'the day is changed to the 2nd of June. You understand? Warn everybody.' "'I can't think why you were worrying about that child, for I was conscious that Medina was entering the room. I managed with my knee to close the shallow drawer with the two sheets in it, and I nodded and smiled to him, putting my hand over the receiver.' Forgive me for using your telephone. Fact is, my wife's in London, and she sent me round a note here, asking me to ring her up. She's got the boy on her mind. I put the tube to my ear again. Mary's voice sounded sharp and high-pitched. Are you there? I'm in Mr. Medina's library, and I can't disturb him talking through this machine. 
there's no cause to worry about Peter John. Greenslade is usually fussy enough, and if he's calm, there's no reason why you shouldn't be. But if you want another opinion, why not get it? We may as well get the thing straightened out now, for I may be going abroad early in June. Yes, sometime after the second. Thank God Mary was quick-witted. The second is very near. Why do you make such sudden plans, Dick? I can't go home without seeing you. I think I'll come straight to Hill Street. All right, I said. Do as you please. I rang off and looked at Medina with a wry smile. What fussers women are. Do you mind if my wife comes round here? She won't be content till she has seen me. She has come up with a crazy notion of taking down a surgeon to give an opinion on the child's appendix. Tommy rot. But that's a woman's way. He clearly suspected nothing. Certainly. Let Lady Hanny come here. We'll give her tea. I'm sorry that the drawing room is out of commission just now. She might have liked to see my miniatures. Mary appeared in ten minutes, and most nobly... She acted her part. It was the very model of a distraught, silly mother who bustled into the room. Her eyes looked as if she had been crying, and she had managed to disarrange her hat and untidy her hair. "'Oh, I've been so worried,' she wailed after she murmured apologies to Medina. "'He really has had a bad tummy pain, and Nurse thought last night that he was feverish.' I've seen Mr. Dobson Ray, and he can come down by the 445. He's such a precious little boy, Mr. Medina, that I feel we must take every precaution with him. If Mr. Dobson Ray says it is all right, I promise not to fuss any more. I think a second opinion would please Dr. Greenslade, for he too looked rather anxious. Oh, no, thank you so much, but I can't stay for tea. I have a taxi waiting, and I might miss my train. I'm going to pick up Mr. Dobson Ray in Wimpole Street. She departed in the same tornado in which she had come, just stopping to set her hat straight at one of the mirrors in the hall. Of course, I'll wire when the surgeon has seen him, and, Dick, you'll come down at once if there's anything wrong, and bring nurses. Poor, poor little darling. Did you say after the 2nd of June, Dick? I do hope you'll be able to get off. You need a holiday away from your tiresome family. Goodbye, Mr. Medina. It was so kind of you to be patient with the silly mother. Look after Dick, and don't let him worry. I had preserved admirably the aloof air of the bored and slightly ashamed husband. But now I realized that Mary was not babbling at large, but was saying something which I was meant to take in. "'Poor, poor little darling,' she crooned as she got into the taxi. "'I do pray he'll be all right. I think he may. "'Dick, I hope, oh, I hope to put your mind at ease before the 2nd of June.' "'As I turned back to Medina, I had a notion that the poor little darling was no longer Peter John.'" End of chapter 16